Hello and welcome to the second webinar of season two of the Asia Undercurrent series. I am Zach Cooper and I'm pleased to be able to moderate this discussion, which is hosted by the government of Japan and Nikkei. We are talking today about the Quad, the grouping among the United States, India, Australia, and Japan, which is playing an increasingly important role, not just in Asian security, but in global security and a broader set of issues as well. As you all know, quadrilateral cooperation has risen to prominence amid growing geopolitical strains. And as the Quad has come to the forefront in the region, it has taken on a broad range of activities encompassing everything from security to health to supply chain cooperation. But questions remain about how effective the Quad can be at addressing this wide range of challenges. The invasion of Ukraine, economic uncertainty coming out of the COVID crisis, growing aggressiveness by China, and human rights and democracy issues all pose serious challenges for the Quad countries. So in order to better understand the challenges facing the Quad and how it can overcome them, we've brought together a panel of leading experts as a prelude to the Quad Summit meeting that will be held in Tokyo on May 24th. So we're joined today by our own Quad of fantastic panelists from the United States, India, Australia, and Japan. They each have written substantially on the Quad I'll just briefly introduce each of them before turning to them for remarks. So first we have Michael Oslin. He's the Payson J. Treat Distinguished Research Fellow in Contemporary Asia at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Next, we have Brahma Chalani, Professor Emeritus at the Center for Policy Research. And then Haley Channer, Senior Policy Fellow at the Perth US Asia Center. And finally, Ken Jimbo, Professor at the Faculty of Policy Management at Keio University. So we'll start with five minutes of remarks from each of our wonderful panelists, and then we'll ask the audience to join in the discussion for questions and answers. To ask a question, please scroll down to the Q&A function. And as uh, you enter your question, please make sure that you include your name and affiliation alongside your question. So with that, Michael, over to you for five minutes of uh, opening remarks. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Zach, and, and thank you to Nikkei and to the uh, government of Japan for pulling together uh, not just this uh, episode, uh, but the entire series, which I think is extremely important, especially for us uh, here in the States, speaking as an American, to be getting perspectives from around the region and around the world. Uh, and for us to be talking about the Quad today, of course, the timing uh, is perfect. Uh, President Biden will be going uh, next week on the 24th for the second Quad uh, leaders meeting. Of course, he'll also be going to South Korea and he'll be seeing the new Korean president. And there's going to be a lot of uh, questions, I think, uh, about uh, the uh, the effectiveness of the Quad going forward, uh, particularly in the post-Ukraine world. Um, so maybe what I'll do is be a little bit more of a skeptic uh, this morning, and then that might uh, possibly spur some debate and, and uh, discussion amongst the panelists and amongst the audience. Um, I don't think I know of anyone who works on Asian issues who is not uh, a Quad supporter. I think everyone has, has waited uh, actually a long time to see it revived. It was revived under the Trump administration in 2017 after a, a, you know, a bit of a start in 2007. Uh, really, in, in many ways, the idea of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of Japan during his first term and then coming back in, in his second and much longer term. Uh, but everyone, I think, 
has been waiting for something that would seem to be the next generation in uh, cooperation amongst liberal nations uh, in Asia. Um, the Biden administration took what the Trump administration did and, and as they would say in Japan, leveled it up, uh, making it as a, a regular for uh, leaders meetings, not, not only the meetings of uh, principals like the, um, uh, the ministers and secretaries of state. But I think there are there are questions as to how far the quad can go, uh, and uh, there's there's there would be general questions anyway, given four very large important nations with their own foreign policies and their own goals. But I would say in the post-Ukraine world, there's real questions as to uh, the the focus that the quad should be taking. While the quad does do some security-related activities. Uh, most of it is is really not focused directly on security and and the the quad statements have actually been very careful to be talking about things like uh, cooperation development, obviously vaccine uh, diplomacy and the like. Um, but in a in a post Ukraine world, the the real concerns of nations are with power politics, with Machtpolitik, with the use of aggression to change borders and to gain. Uh, national security uh, goals of, of whatever nation. Obviously, if we're talking about Asia, we're largely, though not exclusively, talking about China. So uh, will the Quad shift its focus? Can it shift its focus? Can there be agreement among the four partners that security really needs to be, at least in the short run and maybe the medium run, the main focus of, of what the Quad does in order to provide the assurances that the region wants that security will be maintained. Uh, and more specifically, and I know my, my colleague, uh, Professor Chelaney will talk about this, um, there are already splits uh, in the Quad over dealing with Ukraine and Russia and, and the splits between India and the other Quad partners, I think are significant. They, they should not be uh, you know, brushed under the rug or, or ignored. The question is whether the leaders next week will actually address it directly uh, and what it will tell them about how far their partnership can go together. So to sum up, I would say that uh, the Quad is a long needed, a long hoped for evolution in cooperation amongst liberal nations in the region. But like all aspirational groupings or aspirational uh, initiatives, uh, it has a lot of bumps ahead of it. It would have had those bumps anyway. But I think Ukraine has really brought to the fore the question about whether the Quad will focus on the things that likely are to be most of concern to nations uh, around the world, but in the region, which is security. And that we will have to wait and see if they grasp that nettle and try to figure out just how far they can work together. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Great, great opening remarks, and that connects nicely to Brahma Tulane. Brahma, you've uh, written uh, a lot on the Quad, but most recently a piece for Project Syndicate, which I think is really thoughtful, asking many of these same questions about the, the role of the Quad going forward. So over to you for your opening remarks. Thank you, Zach. The Quad is central to the US-led strategy of a free and open Indo-Pacific. This region, as the world's economic and geopolitical hub, will shape the new international order. The Quad's importance remains intact despite the new Biden initiative, initiated AUKUS alliance with Australia and Britain. The US cannot build a stable Asian power balance without India, Japan, and Australia, nor can Japan, Australia, and India. 
build it without America. The Quad today faces some important challenges. In my view, these challenges have not really changed because of the war in Ukraine. Let me quickly identify three of the basic challenges that the Quad faces today. The first challenge is to increase trade among the Quad members rather than with China. Unfortunately, all four Quad members have increased their trade dependencies on China. China still accounts for nearly one third of Australia's global trade. China is also Japan's largest export destination. The US and India for their part, play an important role in boosting Chinese economic and military power by helping Beijing reap growing trade surpluses. These trade surpluses are the main engine driving the Chinese economy today. America's trade deficit with China now makes up nearly 60%, 60% of China's total trade surplus with the world. India, as you may know, is the world's third largest defense spender. What is remarkable about China's trade surplus with India is that it has already surpassed India's defense budget, that too at a time when the two countries are locked in a dangerous military confrontation along their long Himalayan frontier, following some Chinese encroachments on Indian border areas. The second challenge is to complement the Quad's security role with a concretized Indo-Pacific economic dimension so that economic and security interests are fused. Otherwise, if its members pick economic interests over security interests, the Quad's relevance will erode. Australia and Japan, for example, have helped bring the Beijing-promoted RCEP into force. RCEP and China's Belt and Road Initiative underscore the imperative for an economic pillar to give the Quad more comprehensive meaning. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who authored the original free and open Indo-Pacific concept, he had built his concept around an economic pillar. The Biden administration is likely to soon unveil its quote-unquote Indo-Pacific economic framework. This won't be a Quad initiative, rather it'll be open to all Indo-Pacific states, but without Team Biden committing better resources to this region or offering its partners better access to the US market. The third challenge is for the Quad member states to give the Quad a clear strategic direction and meaning. An increasingly expansive agenda is threatening to dilute the Quad's Indo-Pacific strategic focus and even undercut its strategic rationale to serve as a bulwark against Chinese expansionism. The three previous summit meetings since last year attest to the fact that the Quad has turned its attention to everlasting global challenges from climate change, which is uh, Biden's pet concern, and cybersecurity, to global health and supply chains. Meanwhile, the war in Ukraine and the deepening US involvement in that conflict raise new uncertainties about the Quad's direction. Biden is the third successive US president to commit to shifting America's primary strategic focus to Asia and the wider Indo-Pacific region. 
But as he pours military resources into Europe, there is concern that like his two immediate predecessors, Barack Obama and then Donald Trump, Biden too would fail to genuinely pivot to the Indo-Pacific. So to sum up, the Quad has come a long way towards cementing a strategic coalition of the, lead, of the leading democracies of the Indo-Pacific. It continues to gain in strength. The change of administrations in the US and Japan last year, far from slowing momentum, has helped build continuity, making the Quad's future more durable. Yet it's also important to acknowledge that the Quad, four and a half years after it was resurrected, faces new challenges that must be addressed so that it becomes more robust as an initiative. The Quad's Tokyo summit a week from today will be critical in setting the group's direction. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Brahma's wonderful comments. And we'll now turn to Haley Channer. Haley, you've worked uh, on these issues both in government and in, in the think tank world. So really looking forward to, to your thoughts about uh, where the Quad is headed. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Zach. And can I also extend my thanks to the government of Japan and to Nikkei for hosting this event. And just as my other speakers, my co-panelists are talking, it has made me think, I wonder if this is a microcosm of what quad meetings are really like. Because on the one hand, I strongly disagree with some points. And on the other hand, I strongly agree with some points. So I wonder if we aren't getting a little bit of insight here, having our four countries represented. What I'm going to do with my remarks is the first thing I'm going to do is talk about the Australian perspective of the Quad, and then I'm going to talk about my own personal perspective of the Quad. So the Quad Summit next Tuesday is coming, but depending on what happens this Saturday, will actually determine who from Australia attends. This Saturday, Australia is going to go to the polls in its own federal election, and either Australia's current Conservative Prime Minister or the progressive opposition leader is going to attend the Quad Summit. Perhaps surprisingly, the Quad has actually featured in the Australian election campaign because the current government has called into question whether or not the Labor government would support the framework. You see, the current government really blames uh, the opposition for killing the Quad back in 2008. But uh, the main point is that whichever party wins this election, Australia is going to continue to support and really back in the quad for two main reasons. Reason number one is Australia's really lost faith in the ability of larger multinational, multilateral groups in the Indo-Pacific, groups like the East Asia Summit, um, like ASEAN Dialogues, to do practical security things. And Australia sees the quad as offering the best possible alternative. The second thing is that because the Quad puts Australia on a pedestal alongside three of the world's strongest economic, military and geopolitical powers. So it really does elevate Australia's regional and global standing. And if the Quad really gets its act together, it also stands a chance of having its members pool their skills and resources and create outcomes bigger than the sum of their individual parts. So take the Quad's COVID-19 vaccine pledge as an example. Each of the four Quad nations are bringing something unique and distinct to that COVID vaccine partnership, which really justifies why the cooperation should happen under the Quad and not some other mechanism. 
And it's also about providing positive messaging to the regional region and public goods. For Australia as well, uh, getting more vaccine doses into arms around the region is going to be really important for us because we want a stable regional environment. And we also want to kickstart the free flow of people and goods, which the Australian economy relies on because our three biggest uh, exports being coal, iron ore and actually education. But there's also obviously a bigger strategic game um, in play here, even though officials from some of the Quad countries uh, don't readily always admit this. And that's that if the four Quad countries can successfully cooperate on shared goals in the Indo-Pacific, we'll demonstrate the benefits of having liberal democratic practices and the benefits of those uh, systems over Chinese models. And we'll also lay the foundation for a strategic counterweight to China. So if we succeed in this, this could have the effect of complicating Beijing's political and geoeconomic calculations, but not likely its military calculations, because regardless of Quad Navy cooperation in exercise Malabar, for example, there's unlikely to be any scenario where military strategies and objectives of all four Quad nations align in a way that would allow them to counter China militarily. So now just personally talking about my personal perception of the Quad and how it could create a free and open Indo-Pacific. I'm going to make three points. My first point is that although linked, seeing the Quad through the prism of China really limits the Quad's potential. The second point I'm going to make is that the Quad is over-promised and under-delivered, and the only remedy for that is to adequately resource its existing commitments. And the third point I'll make is that the biggest pitfall of the Quad will be its expansion. And hopefully this is an area where we can really get in and nut out the debate. But by expansion, I mean expansion of its focus, expansion of its members and its expansion beyond the Indo-Pacific region. So just on seeing the Quad through the prism of China, all discussions about the Quad seem to start with the assumption that the best thing the Quad could ever achieve, and therefore its reason for existing, is to counter China. This sets the Quad up to fail, number one. And number two, it diminishes the importance of other things the Quad could actually achieve. Yes, the Quad band came back together in 2017 as a result of Chinese aggression, and all four countries see China as their biggest strategic threat. But China isn't the only problem that all four countries face. And why form a group only in response to China when they could try and make progress across a whole range of other areas like supply chain resilience, critical technologies, health security, climate change? So I think because the Quad came back together in, two, well, came together originally in 2004, it was in response to a major crisis the Boxing Day tsunami and earthquake. And again, we're seeing it come back together because uh, of a major crisis, and that's the COVID-19 pandemic. So the Quad is really the most successful when it focuses on a major regional challenge that delivers public goods rather than focusing on countering China. That second point I'll make is that the Quad has overpromised and underdelivered. So although the Quad's had multiple meetings at the leaders level and the foreign secretary level, and it's made a lot of announcements, right now, the only practical thing the Quad has done is deliver 10% 
of its 1 billion COVID vaccines to the Indo-Pacific. Now, if you'll recall, um, former Prime Minister Abe Shinzo used to call the Quad his security diamond. Well, diamonds take billions of years to form, but at the end of that, you're expecting to get a diamond. And if you don't get a diamond, then you're really disappointed. You're just waiting around. So I think it's really important the Quad actually deliver on its commitments. And the final uh, point I'll make is that the Quad's biggest Achilles heel will be its expansion. Its expansion of areas, which is something that Brahma talked about in his last point, its expansion of members, and its expansion outside the Indo-Pacific to look at things like Ukraine. Something I wanted to say um, on this point is that the Quad has actually announced cooperation in 12 separate areas. And the areas aren't specific, they're really broad. I won't mention all 12 of them, but it's not just COVID vaccines or climate change or technology or cyber or infrastructure or supply chains. There's just too many things for the Quad to focus on. Um, and in a paper that I wrote for my own Perth US Asia Centre, I really drilled down into three areas that I think the Quad should focus on. And they are critical technology like digital communications for Southeast Asia and the Pacific, infrastructure, and supply chains. Um, and then on this issue of whether or not we should expand Quad membership and the so-called Quad Plus, I would just make the point that anything more than four is no longer a Quad, it's multilateralism. And what we should do is not call it Quad Plus because that really relegates the Plus members to a sort of subordinate add-on and not equal partners. And obviously the Quad brand also carries a lot of baggage in terms of being seen as an anti-China coalition. So I really think we should drop the Quad Plus tagline. And then the final point I'll make is that we shouldn't be looking beyond the Indo-Pacific. When we look beyond the Indo-Pacific, what happens is for example, when the Quad decided to announce a new humanitarian assistance initiative for Ukraine, what that means is really it exposes the differences between the four Quad countries, something that Michael alluded to earlier, uh, because India uh, has a lot of military cooperation with Russia. It buys a lot of material from Russia. So when the Quad leaves the Indo-Pacific, it really exposes its own soft underbelly um, and opens itself up to criticism immediately. So to recap my three points, I think uh, what we need to do is avoid talking about the Quad as, as if it's the solution to the China problem. We need Quad governments to dedicate resources to their domestic agencies to deliver on their commitments, and the Quad needs to stay small. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Haley. And now we'll turn to Ken Jimbo. Uh, Ken, you've spent a huge amount of time working uh, on, on the Quad, both its bilateral relationships, but also um, thinking about how it applies in Southeast Asia. So very much looking forward to your comments. Well, thank you uh, very much, Zach. And uh, thank you uh, uh, all for a kind invitation to this uh, great gathering. Um, uh, over past, past years, it is uh, important to stress uh, how much the concept of uh, Indo-Pacific uh, gains the gravity of cooperation, not only among regional members like uh, Quad ourselves, um, but also countries outside the region, including Europe, Middle East, East Africa, and even Latin America. And uh, remember, Ecuador is now applying for uh, CPTPP. So um, I believe the Indo-Pacific uh, is the leading concept uh, of the decade. 
and we have enough reason to uh, invest uh, and engage. Mm. And among various mechanisms and regional groupings, uh, the Quad uh, is obviously the most important uh, power group to shape uh, the regional order. But that said, uh, as I uh, really concur with everyone, um, Quad is still uh, the evolutionary stage of development. Uh, and at this stage, uh, trying to put all the eggs uh, into the basket of Quad um, may be too heavy, loaded. Um, some argue that we should aim for the Asian version of uh, NATO uh, based on the Quad. And some expect the Quad should be the group of four leading every strategic issue uh, among ourselves. Um, ahead of any kind of multilateral grouping uh, that we uh, belong to. But I think uh, we, we are far from su such goals. And I, I, I don't believe we are aiming to get these goals. Um, so we are okay um, if China overestimates uh, the role of Quad as uh, they often do so, but we should not overestimate ourselves. So I would argue that the essence of the Quad uh, remains to be resting in each of our bilateral uh, relationships. And simply because uh, our capabilities are highly asymmetrical um, in terms of how much we can uh, project power uh, in the wider region. And sometimes we, our policy priorities are essentially uh, different. Um, I don't want to be too, too much US-centric uh, viewpoint here, but uh, Engaging United States uh, in the each of sub-region that we face, um, that includes Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia, Oceania, and also in the Indo-Pacific, uh, sorry, uh, Indian Ocean, uh, through the sets of bilateral alliance and partnership is to me the number one priority uh, of the, uh, you know, the Quad Corporation, within the Quad Corporation. And why we're doing a naval exercise uh, is because four countries aiming to get together in um, each of you know, maritime issues uh, that we face uh, in the region. Um, and, and that is not the case as, as somebody, uh, you know, uh, previous uh, speaker has mentioned that we are always getting together to deal with uh, every maritime issue that we face uh, in the region. So we do that, that because we need deeper interoperability for sure. And we also need a common approaches uh, to be referred uh, in the every subregion and enhance uh, seamless uh, US presence uh, in the region. And I think that might uh, be uh, emphasized uh, what we should uh, promote in the Quad Corporation. Uh, we can downplay the Quad because we cannot you know, uh, always do the you know, joint actions, uh, especially on the security domain as Amisha has mentioned, but uh, we can actually upgrade our, each of our bilateral relations to be cross-referred uh, with uh, uh, each other. Uh, but I, I'm also all in uh, for compiling functional cooperation where we can cooperate as much as uh, possible. And those involve um, maritime security cooperation, uh, capacity building efforts, especially for the maritime states uh, in Southeast Asia infrastructure investment and finance, uh, as we have uh, begun some of the programs, uh, especially among the Japan, uh, US, Australia uh, financial schemes, um, collaborating on the digital uh, technology that's not, does not only include the digital infrastructure, but also with uh, digital services, 
um, and also the defense industry and procurements, and that uh, also uh, to be enhanced, especially to engage the future uh, Indian procurements uh, among ourselves. And I think those are uh, in the long term, longer term, very uh, important uh, to get India on board uh, in uh, higher defense uh, cooperation with us. Um, and I'm also expecting to see uh, cross agreements on the logistic um, uh, arrangements such as uh, AXA and the recipro reciprocal access agreements uh, among like-minded state, uh, states. And I think these will ensure uh, the legal ground of cooperation to expand uh, military to military uh, you know, function uh, among us uh, beyond the Quad. So um, again, I'm also curious uh, how much uh, we can advance uh, the concept of the economic domain uh, of the security uh, concept uh, in the upcoming summit. Um, the economic security uh, gained more importance, uh, especially in the aftermath of the uh, Ukraine crisis, uh, reminding how important that our national economies are resilient and not to be hijacked or weaponized by, uh, the, by, by through the over-relying on one country or one sector. So diversifying our trades and investment destination um, is always a textbook type of answer. We also simultaneously need uh, boosting uh, economic rationale for our diversification measures, uh, because uh, you know, if, if we do so and the losing competitiveness among ourselves uh, is always completely opposite answer uh, for the uh, economic security. So the trade restriction, you know, setting the entity list, um, investment screenings are uh, what, what we all need. However, uh, that should be coupled uh, with the economic enhancement measures uh, for uh, our new investments. And so I hope that the Quad uh, can be a, such a base for uh, such kind of like a proactive uh, economic uh, cooperation, um, enhancing business relations and the more robust uh, than what we have achieved so far. I'll stop here and look forward to the discussion. Thank you, Zach. Wonderful. Thank you, Ken. Well, this is, uh, I think, a wonderful set of opening comments, and we can already see a couple of the tensions emerging, right? And I, I think this is true, not just of uh, the commentators here, but but broadly of the four countries, that um, there's a lot of alignment, of course, about what the Quad is doing and what it should do, but there are some areas where I think there are some difficult tensions. So um, before we go to the audience, I want to ask a, a couple of questions about a few of these areas which have already come up. So let's start with China. Um, this came up in, in several of the remarks. Is the Quad really focused on China? Is it about China? Should it be about China? Um, you know, if you read many of the statements that have come out from the Quad leaders meetings or the foreign ministers, uh, some of them don't even mention China at all. It's, it's literally not in, for example, the op-ed that was written a year ago by the Quad leaders. Um, and yet, I think at the core, what is true about the Quad is that all four countries really have a common desire to balance, at least to some degree, against China, including in the military domain. And this is part of what makes them different from some other countries in the region. So I want to ask, is the Quad really about China? And, and should it be? Um, or is it really more about the broader region? And should it be more disconnected from the, the China challenge. 
So, um, Michael, I, I know you opened with a couple of remarks on this. I don't know if you want to jump in on this issue or if others would as well. Well, look, I, I'd like it to be about the broader region, and I think in many ways it is, but I think it'd be disingenuous for us to pretend it's not about China. I mean, it, it, everyone understands it's about China. China, uh, China either thinks it's about China or makes it about China, which then makes the quad about China. Um, you know, the counterfactual would be to say, you know, in the absence of China, would we have a quad? And if we didn't have a quad before we all worried about China, then doesn't that indicate, isn't that positive in a sense of indicating what, what the concerns are? Now, the fact that it may be about China doesn't mean that everything the quad has to do is related to China. And I think Haley's points about if you make the quad about China or, or opposing China or the or the answer to China, then you're setting it up for failure. Uh, and in many ways, I, I agree with that. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, there's there, there are few in the region who don't think that the greatest challenge, be it economic, be it ideological, be it, uh, you know, be it be it political and let alone security is China. Then when you have the, the largest liberal nations coming together, it, it seems pretty clear that if they're not there to deal with the uncertainty and the instability created by that actor, then the question becomes, and then what's the quad for? And I, I think the quad can still do a lot of good things. But just one last point, which is, I think in some ways it's actually I think Haley's right. If, if you, you know, again, if you say the quad is going to be the answer to China, it's going to fail. On the other hand, I think in some ways it's actually a lot easier to get the quad to be focused on, on security. There's, there's, a, there's a high bar for that, but still to get it to be focused on security than some of the other things that have been mentioned. I mean, our nations have such divergent views on, on digital standards and divergent views on trade and all sorts of other things that I think it's actually going to be harder to get the quad to be an effective, united, um, you know, uh, issue-oriented group, meaning we've decided we're going to work together on this issue with all of these other things, because it, it gets to domestic issues, whereas the security is a foreign issue outside of domestic politics, mostly. And I think that that's how nations often find it easier to cooperate, because you don't have to take into account what's going on internally. But if the quad starts getting bogged down, though I think these are very good ideas in general, if it starts getting bogged down in things like digital standards and, uh, and the like, then I think it's gonna be, be a big problem. And then finally, just very finally, um, Haley's point that, uh, or I think it was Haley, whoever mentioned it, that only 10% of the billion doses have been, uh, for COVID vaccine have been distributed. If that in some way shouldn't have been the easiest thing the quad could do, then I think, again, it indicates the difficulty of trying to get into these, these areas that seem, that seem good, but in, in the long run, sort of are peripheral to the thing that we're all most concerned about. I'll leave it at that. Thanks. Great. Thanks, Michael. Brahma, Haley, uh, Ken, would, would any of you like to jump in on this as well? Look, I was mentioned then, so I might just jump in quickly before Brahma. Um, the, the, you know, there's no question, China is inextricably linked to the Quad. 
I mean, I don't want to give everyone a history lesson here, but what I would say is, you know, the Quad originally came together in 2004 because of a disaster, but then it started meeting after that disaster because it realised, oh, we've also got this problem with China and we have strategic things we want to talk about together in private rooms. And then the Quad broke up because of China, because China was upset about it, uh, China was concerned about it, it had made diplomatic protests, so the Quad disintegrated. And then the Quad came back together because of China. So yes, the Quad is about China, but the Quad is not going to be successful if it just runs at China as being an anti-China coalition. And what it actually can do is be a more attractive, offer more attractive things than Chinese models, because that's really how you're going to win the war of influence and you're going to bring the entire Indo-Pacific region around. Um, you're not going to win it by creating a coalition or a block against China. And to be honest, you know, that can just expedite and get us closer to the conflict that we're all trying to avoid. So, yes, the Quad is related to China, but the things that it's doing aren't directly to counter China. They're meant to be providing better alternatives to what China is offering. And, you know, I didn't bore everyone by going through all the 12 things that the Quad is working on. But if you think about the cooperation, whether that's infrastructure, you know, that could be to counter China's Belt and Road Initiative, or if it's about the COVID diplomacy, well, China also has COVID vaccines. And the same, you know, with cyber and other areas of cooperation in maritime security. So the, the problems are parallel to China, um, but just talking about um, the Quad as if it is, you know, anti-China is not going to benefit the framework. And it's not going to help the, those countries achieve what they ultimately want, which is a stable balance of power in the region in a kind of multipolar order where China is not hegemonic and all the other countries are playing their role in um, creating a stable region. Fantastic. Rama or Ken, do you want to jump in on this as well? Well, <clears throat> if I could say a few words. Um, it's good that the Quad doesn't mention China, because there's no need to mention China in any joint statement or, or a national statement. But the very purpose of the Quad was to help build a stable power equilibrium in the Indo-Pacific region. It was the Chinese expansionism in the South China Sea, which is the most critical corridor linking the Pacific and the Indian Oceans that served as a wake up call and led to the evolution of the Quad. But the Quad is not, was not designed to be a military alliance, does not intend to be a military alliance. Yet, paradoxically, its purpose is to help rein in Chinese expansionism. How it does that is, is the challenge. So there is a strategic rationale driving the Quad. But the Quad is not a military initiative, nor does it have the means to help build a stable balance of power in the Indo-Pacific. So that uh, leads us to what the Quad can deliver on. And I think uh, the reference to the much touted vaccine initiative is a good example. This vaccine initiative was launched at the first ever first summit meeting of the Quad in March last year. And when it was launched, there was hope that the Quad would make a difference at a time when COVID vaccines were in short supply in the Indo-Pacific and elsewhere. 
The plan was to manufacture more than a billion vaccines a year, especially the Johnson & Johnson vaccine for Southeast Asia and other parts of the world at India's Biological E company plants. Unfortunately, the Quad's vaccine initiative didn't live up to the promise. In fact, the Quad initiative on vaccines coincided with the Biden administration imposing an embargo on export of vaccine components and raw materials. That embargo disrupted vaccine production in Europe, in India, and elsewhere. Today, there's a glut of vaccines everywhere, despite the Quad's vaccine initiative not delivering on its promise. This is a reminder that the Quad must translate its rhetoric into action. I think Haley's point about overpromising and underdelivering is a very valid one. Just having global health or COVID vaccination on your agenda means nothing, means little. The Quad must focus, must focus on deliverables. For example, if there were to be a natural disaster somewhere in the Indo-Pacific, all four Quad members could undertake joint rescue and relief operations. That could be one example of how the Quad is coming together to deal with an emergency. Well, that's very thoughtful, Brahma. And I think it, it gets us towards, um, you know, a bit of an answer to the question of, of China and the Quad, which is that, of course, the Quad is sort of motivated in large part by China, but, but the Quad's actions don't have to be all about China, right? The responses may be in other domains. And, and Ken, I want to come to you and ask a question about one of those areas, which is the, the role of the Quad and the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN. Um, you know, there's there's been a fair amount written about this in Southeast Asia and, and questions about whether the Quad is a threat to Southeast Asia. You know, every Quad statement always mentions ASEAN centrality. Um, and yet there's this feeling that, right, the, the Quad in some ways is sort of four pretty large and important countries surrounding Southeast Asia, right? Japan on the north, Australia to the south and the United States and India to the East and West. And in the center, you have Southeast Asia, which isn't part of the Quad. So what should the role of the Quad and ASEAN be? Are, are these two groups potentially you know, in competition or do you think the relationship can be more cooperative? Well, I think uh, obviously there has been the growing recognition that the ASEAN uh, the role of ASEAN could be diluted uh, by the uh, Quad uh, cooperation um, enhancement and overlooking the traditional role of the ASEAN uh, for the consensus building uh, for norms and actions uh, that will be taking place uh, in the wider uh, regions. Uh, so that basically there has been the, the more confrontational relationship between the ASEAN way of the managing the region versus what the Quad uh, is now uh, enhancing. But I think uh, ASEAN has uh, recognizing uh, that they also need their own uh, robustness and reform uh, in dealing uh, with the ASEAN's uh, staying the relevant uh, status uh, in the age of uh, strategic uh, competition. So this is a reason that they have adopted uh, the, uh, the ASEAN's own version of the outlook on the uh, Indo-Pacific, although it's a very um, comprehensive nature of how they try to capturize the concept of the uh, Indo-Pacific, but uh, it is uh, very important to recognize that they adopted the concept of the uh, Indo-Pacific. 
And uh, we also find there, there have been a gradation among the ASEAN members, uh, especially in response to Ukraine. Singapore has been very leaning forward. And by analyzing the voting behavior in the uh, UN uh, you know, um, uh, General Assembly, uh, there have been a somewhat uh, the, you know, find the nation uh, who wish to uh, commit more uh, to those, uh, the, like a global nature of um, a global coalition among the uh, G7 plus uh, members. And I think, uh, uh, I think finding out, exploring those potential uh, among those uh, you know, ASEAN members uh, who can be partnering more uh, with uh, uh, Quad associate members on the specific subjects. And I think a uh, coalition of the willing uh, type of approach to ASEAN, we, we are not only dealing with the ASEAN as a whole, but I think each nation inside the ASEAN uh, have become uh, more, uh, I think, important. And especially on that case that the Singapore is the one and the Indonesia as a chair of the G20, if uh, you know those countries will take a, a more robust leadership uh, to lead ASEAN to be more competitive, among those, uh, you know, different uh, uh, different regional framework, uh, that might be the things that we, we should approach to uh, ASEAN more robustly. Thanks, Ken. You know, it's it's a really challenging issue for the Quad, and and another one that's related is, um, should the Quad stay at four, uh, or should it expand? Right, and and you know, this came up in several of the mar remarks. Um, Haley, you brought this up uh, in particular, but you know there there have been these questions about whether the quad should become the quints or you know even expand more, more broadly. At the moment, um, there is a bit of cooperation with other countries at the quad meetings. So there there have been observers from other countries at some of those meetings, and um, in fact, the working groups uh, have been inviting certain countries to cooperate with uh, the working groups, for example, on supply chain issues. Um, but this question of expansion of the Quad, um, I'm wondering if any of you believe that it would be wise to include other countries in the Quad. You know, the United Kingdom has talked about potentially being interested, so is South Korea. Um, do any of you think that expanding the Quad would be a smart idea at the moment? No one. <laughs> I think this is this is interesting because you know the more that the quad acts as sort of a a critical uh, regional uh, block, um, the more interest there is from outside the quad to have some countries at least uh, be part of a quad plus format. But it's I, I think it's interesting that the there is uh, some hesitation about this. Um, well, Zach, Misha, I would, yeah, yeah, I, I would say look, I I think um, so there are. There are models for the the plus. Uh, you know, you have ASEAN plus. You know, you do have observers that can come in and at least get familiarized with what's going on, and then it can affect their bilateral relations, or or they can even become you know they can participate in certain certain aspects and elements. So I think I don't think it's you know institutionally or structurally a problem to say let's let's have a plus. I think the the bigger issue is conceptual. It's what do you actually want to do, and if what we're really moving towards is a grouping of liberal nations, which of course the quad is to begin with, uh, then, you know, you need, ultimately you just, you need to, to embrace that directly, either to say yes or no. Um, I think in some ways what's going on in Ukraine helps make that clearer, you know, however long it's going to be the next decade or the next generation, 
we seem to have a much clearer divide now between liberal and illiberal nations, the use of force, uh, multilateral institutions. Um, some you know, think that, that Ukraine, for example, has revitalized NATO. It may have revitalized this sort of more amorphous liberal order. Um, but at, at a minimum, you know, to think that liberal nations should be getting together to be talking about security. So the Quad, of course, half of the Quad, uh, I'm sorry, three quarters of the Quad already is in an alliance structure, right? The U.S. and Australia and then the U.S. Uh, and Japan. Uh, something we haven't mentioned yet uh, is AUKUS, uh, which is also two uh, alliances, uh, you know, Europe and Asia and the United States. Um, maybe we should be talking about whether Japan goes into AUKUS and it becomes JAUKUS because it is more security oriented. Um, I thought Brahma's point was actually interesting in which he said, you know, the, the quad cannot be, um, cannot if, if I have it right, what he said, cannot create a, a stable balance of power, Brahma. I think it was something along those lines. Correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong. And yet in some ways it, it's placed to do so because of the three quarters of it that already is in a formal alliance and India, which has been talking about sea lane security, you know, security stretching from the South China Sea into the Indian Ocean, the Andaman area, um, critical, critical sea lanes of communication and choke points such as the Malacca Strait. So in some ways, you know, I agree, if you're not going to have a, uh, you know, an armed quad like NATO patrolling the seas, although our warships and navies are already out there doing that but to 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 ignore or or maybe not take advantage of what's already happening i think equally misses the point and actually gives an immediacy of of effort or an immediacy of of purpose to the quad that at least at least we should be thinking about and that i think is then when you start talking about other partners coming in. The UK, I think, being a critical one. France, potentially, with all of the French uh, territories in, in the Indo-Pacific as well. Let me build on uh, something you said, Misha, and ask the final question before we open it up to the audience. Uh, and as a reminder for the audience, uh, please go to the Q&A function at the bottom of your screens if you want to ask a question and just provide us uh, your name and affiliation along with your question. So, so Misha, you mentioned Ukraine. Uh, it hasn't really come up yet in the discussion, but I think it will be hard to avoid in a week when the Quad meets. Um, obviously, you know, there's a little bit of uh, tensions within the Quad on, on Ukraine. Uh, Japan, Australia, and the United States have, have been quite uh, active in critiquing Russia and applying sanctions. Um, and obviously, India has a long-standing relationship with Russia, which, which is in many ways very important to Indian foreign policy and to Indian defense policy. So India has a different position uh, on this. How much um, do you think that Ukraine will be critical at the upcoming Quad meeting? Um, and, and do you think that the Ukraine-Russia relationships that each of the Quad members have are going to be a challenge for quad cooperation going forward. I think Brahma, you know, you noted a little bit about this, so maybe we could turn to you first. Well, you know, there was a virtual summit uh, earlier in March that um, Biden initiated, and he attempted to bring Ukraine and European security 
into the Quad agenda. But that summit didn't go very far because uh, India opposed the expansion of the Quad agenda to Ukraine and European security. So I guess uh, in Tokyo, there'll be no attempt to repeat what was tried out in March. I think the purpose of the Tokyo meeting is to clearly set the direction for the Quad's uh, coming months and coming years, set a clear direction so that the Quad can become a, a robust initiative. But if I could turn to this larger issue about Ukraine and how uh, it has become a divisive issue. Uh, first, I think it's important to keep in mind that in this, this is a conflict now between, between Russia and the West, because the entire Western world has come together to impose unprecedented sanctions on Moscow. But we should not forget that much of the non-Western world has declined to take sides in what is emerging as a new Cold War. If you look at the world's major non-Western democracies, from Brazil and Mexico to South Africa and Indonesia, they've all charted a course of neutrality. So India is not alone. India is part of this non-Western world. It's part of the Quad, but it's also part of the non-Western world. That's the reality. And now again, now about India. India holds more annual military exercises with the US than any other country. And not many people know this. US arms sales to India have in recent years far surpassed Russian defense equipment sales to India. The US is also India's largest trading partner. And the almost $150 billion goods and services trade that India has with the US dwarfs, dwarfs India's trade with Russia. India's trade with Russia is only about $12 billion. However, there's an important reason why India is hesitant to join the US-led anti-Russia alliance, because India feels that such a coalition will not only drive Moscow into a closer embrace with Beijing, but also exacerbate India's regional security challenges by aiding the further rise of an expansionist China. How many, how many know that India faces its own aggression today? a Chinese aggression on the border. There are some 200,000 rival Chinese and Indian forces locked in standoffs, many of them in eyeball-to-eyeball confrontation for almost two years now. And there is a, the two countries on a, on a, are on a war footing in the Somalian border region. So given the fact that India faces its own border aggression, India's concern is that the US-led sanctions will effectively put Russia, Russia is the world's richest country in natural resources. It will put Russia in the pocket of a resource-hungry China. And the main brunt of the rise of a more powerful and aggressive China will be borne by its neighbors, especially India. Japan and Australia are under the US security and nuclear umbrella, but India must deal with China on its own as the current Himalayan military crisis shows. And, and look at another irony. Biden wants India to side with the US against Russia. But Biden has still not uttered a single word on China's ongoing border aggression against India. 
This, has, this secretion has triggered the largest Somalian buildup of rival forces in history. In fact, in keeping with Biden's outreach to Beijing, his State Department equating the victim with the aggressor has urged India to find, quote unquote, a peaceful resolution with China. The US is unwilling to take sides in this China-India dispute, but it wants India to come to America's side against Russia, even if it means compounding India's security challenges. So that's the background that one has to keep in mind in understanding why India is hesitant to jump on the US bandwagon. Well, brother, we've got a couple of great questions from the audience that I think are related to some of the points you raised. And you know, one of the things that's very interesting about the Quad is that each of the four countries, they they really do have slightly different focuses when it comes to security issues. You know, obviously the Sino-Indian border is, is a big focus for India, but you know, for Japan, it's really the East China Sea and the Senkaku Islands for the United States. I think increasingly it's it's uh, focused on Taiwan and the Taiwan Strait, um, and then for Australia we've we've got a whole range of issues, but I, I think the Pacific Islands are are at the top of the list, and we have a question from a researcher at Waseda University, who asks um, about the security pact between the Solomon Islands and China, and so Haley, I want to turn to you and and ask this question. Um, is there a role for the Quad to manage these kinds of challenges, um, you know, with Chinese influence abroad, particularly in the Pacific Islands, or is this something better done perhaps by Australia or bilaterally between Australia and the United States, you know, New Zealand and others? Is this a Quad role um, or is the Quad better focused in, in other areas? Well, I think if you ask Brahma that question, uh, he would agree with me in saying that the Pacific is not a high priority of India's and therefore it doesn't really represent good value for money in terms of a quad area for cooperation. That said, um, yes, for those of you who are aware of it, um, recently China and the Solomon Islands struck a new defence pact and that has caused a lot of concern in Australia especially in our, the lead up to our election campaign with um, the current government wanting to look tough on national security and talking out quite um, you know, loudly about red lines. I really cringed when I heard that line because I thought of poor President Obama and his red line comment. But um, the issue of Chinese influence in the region is something that is affecting all four Quad nations, but I don't see the Pacific as being an area for Quad cooperation. Um, yes, the United States and Japan have been in the Pacific, but Australia really is um, a leader within the Pacific family, what we call the Pacific family. And a couple of years ago, we already recognised that China was increasing its influence there, including through its Belt and Road Infrastructure Initiative. And back then, Australia announced a, a policy called Pacific Step Up where basically Australia was going to reinvest in its relationships in the Pacific to avoid this, uh, you know, a vacuum being created and China coming in and offering the Pacific Island countries really attractive deals, including this defence pact. What concerns me about this defence pact, uh, the text of which was leaked via Twitter, so we're not actually sure if that's exactly the text that was agreed to, but if it is, the concerning feature for that um, and the problem for the rules-based order is just how vague that agreement is. It's almost like offering China a blank check to the Solomon Islands so that 
if there is any more unrest in the Solomon Islands, which last time was caused by a political disagreement about recognition or not of Taiwan, that China could come in um, with its security and military forces to really reinforce um, its embassy there and help the Solomon Islands government. Now, in the past, um, Australia has been the security partner of choice for the Solomons, and we do remain that way. But, you know, there is this concern about the creep to China for Pacific Island countries. So what we need to do together, I think, not as a quad, but probably trilaterally, Australia, Japan and the United States, is think about how we're going to deliver more compelling alternatives, including infrastructure. And that really is a big, a big problem because infrastructure is extremely expensive. Um, often there's some level of corruption or kind of greasing the wheels. Um, that's why in the past I've suggested one of the good areas for infrastructure cooperation, which is less controversial too because it doesn't actually go on territory, is undersea fibre optic cables. Um, that's a good way to kind of secure Pacific islands, which can be really disrupted. So, for example, earlier this year, another Pacific island nation, Tonga, um, had an earthquake and it was cut off from the world because its submarine cable was disrupted. So we really need to think what do Pacific island nations need and work with them to deliver those things so they don't go looking for it elsewhere. That's a great point, Haley. Um, Ken, I, I want to turn to you with a, another question, uh, this time actually from a student at Macquarie University uh, in Australia. Um, and uh, so the, the question is um, about the role of the Quad and what I'll call sort of values issues, right? Human rights and democracy, um, which is something we, we haven't talked that much about this morning, but is obviously a part of the Quad, right? We, we often talk about how the, the Quad is a grouping of four leading democracies. Um, but the questioner says um, excessive intervention in, on these kinds of values issues could be a, a wedge creator. Right, it, it could allow China or Russia to drive wedges between the Quad countries, or maybe between the Quad and other groups, say Southeast Asian partners. Right, you know, notoriously, only three of the ten members of ASEAN were actually invited to the Summit for Democracy here in Washington um, last year. So there are these questions about how much the Quad should focus on on human rights or democracy issues. Um, so, Ken, what, what do you think about the, the value of talking about these issues within the Quad, or should they really be secondary to a broader set of interests? Yeah, I, uh, I wish I, I had answer uh, to this uh, very difficult uh, question, but I think that uh, we all agree uh, that uh, pursuing uh, the, the goal, which is unachievable, uh, will only um, dilute the effectiveness of the Quad, uh, which leaves uh, the China and other players to uh, take a wedge uh, among ourselves. But that said, uh, it doesn't mean that uh, the Quad should be leading uh, the, the platform of the regional order. And I think uh, one of the basis, baseline of the platform is how much we can really internationalize the issue that we uh, face uh, in our region. Because for example, China tried to make uh, their uh, own issue as a domestic ones, uh, either on Taiwan, South China Sea, and even the East China Sea. But when that the Quad members and together with the European uh, you know, uh, nations uh, try to engage in, the, in, in those problems, 
um, uh, and then regard them as uh, their own issues. And that issues uh, will become more internationalized uh, with their commitments. So this is the part of the reason of our, like a demonstration of the, our presence, uh, you know, um, uh, operations. Uh, the Malabar that, you know, uh, many mentions that it's not only taking place uh, in the Indian Ocean, but also take place in the South China Sea. Uh, and also the other areas, which also demonstrate how much we are concerned uh, with the issue uh, that we face uh, in the Egypt region. Doesn't mean that we are operate together in the actual sense, but it does mean that we commit uh, to the common values that uh, we care uh, with each other. But, for, but uh, again, that as you mentioned, that Asia is a diverse uh, nation, and especially specific issue like how to deal with Vietnam, a strategically very important uh, nations that we have, uh, we have uh, lots of potential for, uh, you know, exploiting uh, the strategic uh, cooperation with them. But once that the value issues come in, democracy, human rights, and all, all that things, uh, that they, uh, those kind of potential uh, will be uh, very much squeezed uh, with each other. So I think that, uh, you know, I, I think we should uh, look at more practical way that what will be the most effective way to set the platform uh, with each other. Once that, once that all the other uh, superficial kind of value concept comes into the projects, uh, that's going to be uh, counterproductive uh, in, uh, I think, promoting the actual uh, cooperation among ourselves. Jack, if I could add something to what Ken I agree with Ken, and I think uh, it's important not to get too much into this democracy versus autocracy narrative, because this narrative can be quite self-constraining. Now, if you look at the Quad, every Quad joint statement talks about ASEAN centrality. And, and Jack, you mentioned that Biden invited only three ASEAN members to his democracy summit. The fact is that out of the, out of the 10 ASEAN member states, only two are genuine democracies with traditional independence and free press. So one has to be very careful because if you frame international issues in this uh, democracy versus uh, autocracy narrative, you're going to be constraining your, your foreign policy uh, Options. In fact, uh, one of the reasons why several states in the Middle East, including Persian Gulf sheikdoms, did not support some of the UN resolutions that were sponsored by the US or the, by the Western Bloc uh, over Ukraine invasion of Russia is because of this narrative: democracy versus uh, 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 democracy versus autocracy. You know, these are. These are all autocracies in the Middle East. Similarly, I think uh, to simplify uh, the Ukraine war, to turn it into a, you know, into, into turn Ukraine into a symbol of freedom and liberal democracy, distorts the reality. The fact is that Ukraine has a record of increasingly repressive policies under Zelensky. He has banned opposition parties, he had jailed political opponents, he has shut down independent media outlets. In fact, Ukraine is, under him is one of the most corrupt nations in the world. And therefore, this simplistic narrative, you know, that this is the democracy versus autocracy struggle, even though, you know, I'm for all for human rights, for promoting democracy. But this kind of narrative we should avoid because it kind of, it distorts 
the realities. Right. I, I think this is just going to be more and more of an issue going forward, you know, as the Biden administration thinks about releasing its national security strategy and, you know, the, the interim guidance it released was very much about democracy versus autocracy. And I think we've heard the president uh, reinforce that language recently. So I think this is a, a very difficult tension, uh, definitely in the United States, but I'm sure um, for some of the other quad members as well. Um, well, we only have about five or 10 minutes left. So Misha, I want to turn to you with a, a question um, from uh, one of the participants um, from Singapore, which is about uh, supply chains and the quad, which is, is not something we've, we've touched on yet. Um, but this role of the quad and economic security issues, right? Um, this is a difficult one. And obviously, I, I think you're in Washington, but you've got a beautiful view of Silicon Valley uh, behind you. So we have to ask you the supply chain question. Um, how should the quad play a role on supply chain issues? You know, do you, do you think, for example, the supply chain working group that the quad has set up, is that, is that a core issue that the quad is well positioned to deal with? Um, how, how do you think about that uh, and its role in the quad? Well, I, you know, I have a Silicon Valley background. I'm not a, a supply chain person or, or, you know, even really much of economic security, but I think your, you know, your question gets to a, a core, let me just start with sort of a meta, a meta question. And there's two of them, which is, and, and I'm not, a, I'm not sure that we've actually even really grappled with this yet this morning, which is number one, what do we want? And when I say we, all four partners, what do we actually want out of the quad? We already have bilateral relations. We've, we, we have alliances amongst three of the four, a close partnership, increasingly close between the US and India, as, as Brahma has mentioned. So what is the, what is the plus alpha, as Japanese would say, or, or what is the value added, as we would say in America, of, of the quad? That's number one. The second question is, all of these countries that we're talking about that we want to have some sort of relationship with outside of the quad, but with the quad, what do they want? And there's actually a question from the Philippines uh, about that. You know, what, what are the benefits that we're going to get out of it? Um, and I'm not sure we've, we've actually answered those questions. I think Brahma's points about you know, democracy versus autocracy are really important. Uh, sitting in Washington and spending part of the year in California, you know, I would I would like us to make it about democracy versus autocracy. I don't think you can avoid that issue anymore. That doesn't mean that you don't work with nations however you can, but I think you know if you're if you're not being clear, and I think it was Haley said it earlier, we have to be talking about the benefits of our system. If you're not doing that, then what's the point of working with us? Uh, we don't do infrastructure. And we should do infrastructure. That would have been should have been something we've been doing for a generation. Um, we don't do a lot of these things that nations actually want. So on supply chains, we have. I don't understand how the Quad is going to deal with supply chains when we can't get baby formula in the United States. You know, we've got hundreds of ships piled up outside of Long Beach, San Francisco, New York. We have our own supply chain problems, and I don't see how the Quad is in any way going to be able to really address. The question of supply chains would seem supply chains which seem so specialist. I don't think any of us here are really qualified, probably, to actually talk about supply chains. We can understand it in terms of certain, and I would put it in this way: national security goals, uh, semiconductor chips, 
Um, we, we learned through COVID, PPP, personal protective equipment and the like. Um, all of these things are very important. But after two years, uh, and I think it was Brahma who said it, we're actually more dependent on China than we were before COVID. So we've done nothing to secure our supply chains. We've done nothing to secure really our, our semiconductor dependency, although you know, there may be some things starting in, in Arizona and Ohio. So I think you know, to, to talk about how the quad can do it to me to seems to be such a bridge too far unless we get some really smart supply chain people unlike me to talk to us about what the quad can actually do. But it, it, it worries me that we're all just sitting here looking at years potentially of shortages ahead and then we have a supply chain working group. It seems divorced from reality. I think this is a really challenging question for the quad, right? So the, we all want the quad, I think, to be successful. And yet um, what we've raised here this morning is, you know, in many ways, the quad is about China or it's, in, it's inspired uh, by dealing with issues related to China. But, um, but the more the quad tries to do, the less focus it has on any one issue. And so whether it's supply chain issues or global warming or pandemic relief, um, it does seem like we've now reached the point where the question isn't what the quad can do in any of these areas. It's a, really a question of prioritization, right? And, and where the quad can have the most effect. And I think we've hit on a lot of these issues, right? We've talked about whether um, the quad should focus on democracy and human rights issues, whether it should talk about supply chains, whether it should really talk openly about China, you know, where it should operate, whether that's in the Pacific Islands or in the Southeast Asia with the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Um, but I think what all this drives towards is a week from now when the quad leaders uh, meet, it's gonna be really important for them to start delivering results, right? And, and I think there've been a lot of commitments made, but many of us are, are looking for those results. And I think that's um, a great place uh, for us to end this discussion. Um, it's been so wonderful having all four of you here. Thank you, Misha, Haley, Brahma, and Ken for your, for your comments uh, and insights. I think we've we've delved into a lot, but we probably could have gone uh, another hour or two. Uh, and there certainly are many, many more questions from the audience, but we are out of time. Uh, so let me just say for the for the audience, um, if you go down to the bottom of uh, your screen uh, below the the webinar, you uh, will find a link that will uh, send you to an assessment of of the program, and we'd urge you to to go ahead and click on that link. Uh, and please stay tuned for additional events uh, in the Asia Undercurrent series. So the next webinar will be in June and you can go to the Asia Undercurrent website or to Twitter to find out more information. So with that, let me just thank uh, Misha, Haley, Brahma and Ken uh, for joining us this morning and look forward to seeing you all again at the next event in June. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Zach. Everyone. Thanks everyone. Thank you, thank you Zach. Thank you.